2 tonight. Titus chapter number 2. And we're looking at the very last verse of this particular passage. Fortunately, um, we preached um, through chapter 2 because chapter, verse 15 is calling us back to everything in chapter 2. Now, just for your sake, I will not re-preach chapter 2 because of that. But the title of the message tonight is Speak, Exhort, Rebuke, and Respect. Uh, we're only going to get to deal with probably speak and exhort tonight, maybe a little rebuking, um, but we're going to talk about those. So if you would stand to your feet out of respect for the reading of the Word of God as we look at this single verse tonight. The Apostle Paul, writing to Titus on the Isle of Crete, says to him, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, help us to be reminded that through the simplicity of the way the Word is written, that we can gain an understanding and we don't have to be confused if we will just read our scriptures in context. And that you would aid us tonight to become more like the Savior and to be obedient to the passages that are put before us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Now, these words are a summation or they're, they're telling him how to handle the summation of chapter number 2. Um, he's saying these things, of course, uh, the things that I've been talking about. Now, how we're going to work through this is, is a very simple way. And I'm going to give you tonight what is considered a basic scripture lesson. In other words, I'm going to show you in one way, how you can work through any passage of Scripture with a little bit better understanding. So, if you've opened your Bible before and read a passage and thought, what does that mean? I'm hopefully going to give you a few hints as to how to open a passage of Scripture, work through it by yourself, using the Scripture, and maybe a dictionary at the most, and... Uh, you'll be able to better understand a passage. And this is a great passage for this type of instruction. So we, we start off with the passage, these things speak. These things. Well, the first question that ought to come to your mind when you read a passage like that is, what things? These things. Well, what things? Well, it must be the things he's already discussed. So this is a passage that without context wouldn't do us much good. Uh, we have to have the context of what has already been discussed. So, what things? We'll go all the way back to verse number one. Like I said, I'm not going to re-preach it. We're just going to touch on these things. Well, these things will be the things that he must speak that will complement the doctrine or sound doctrine that he is giving them. He says, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. The things which complement sound doctrine. Okay, that's some of the things, these things. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, he's, that he, this is such a simple passage because a guy like me can understand it. So what are some of those things? Verse number two, the conduct of aged men is brought into question. Those are the things that you need to speak and exhort and rebuke. You need to do it with all authority. When you're dealing with these older men, these, the things that I'm telling you about them, those are the things you're going to have to go over and over and over with them. 
Verse 3, the conduct of aged women. You're going to have to take these things that I've told you about the aged women and you're going to have to speak them and you're going to have to exhort these people in it and sometimes you're going to have to rebuke them. Verses 4 and 5, the, the expectation of the young women. The young women have to be taught something and these are the things you're going to have to speak and exhort and rebuke. Verse number 7 through the first part of verse number 8 is going to be the conduct of young men. How young men ought to be acting. How they need to be carrying themselves. He says, you're going to have to do this regularly, Titus. You're going to have to make sure. You've got to speak them. You're going to have to say them into their ears. Then you're going to have to exhort them. And then, of course, you may have to rebuke them. Then in verse 8, and the last line of verse number 8 there, it says this, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. Now, we dealt with that heavily when we were working on that passage. But all of the teaching of the aged men and the aged women and the young men and young women, he said, is done so, so that those that will be contrary to Titus's mission there, and, and the people that would be contrary would be Jewish people who were not converted, that were fighting against the Christianity on that island, the unconverted pagans on the Isle of Crete, and then there might just be uncommitted Christians that he's going to have to deal with. These are people of the contrary part. He said, you're going to have to speak and you're going to have to exhort and rebuke that he which is of the contrary part may be ashamed. Now, the idea of him being ashamed is coming from a Greek word which means to turn about. A little different than repent, for sure, but it has the same idea. The difference is that in repentance you have a change of mind about something, but the phrase that is used here, that they may be ashamed, has to do with that you might be shame-faced before somebody and humbled in front of them. So in other words, you've got somebody who's of the contrary part. They're fussing about the things you're preaching to the aged men, the aged women, the young men, the young women, and they don't like it. But then something happens that causes the people that were previously criticizing you to humble themselves and actually listen to you. Because what happens is that as Titus speaks and exhorts and rebukes, the aged men and women, the young men and young women are going to begin to act differently, those who are born again. Those of the contrary part are going to watch what this doctrine that they have been taught begins to produce in their life. And those that were opposed to what Titus was doing originally starts observing these old men that were once not sober, these aged women that didn't know how to act and drank too much wine, these young men and young women that were silly and frivolous and maybe unholy in the way that they were living. Once God saves them and the doctrine is being preached to them and he's exhorting and rebuking and 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 speaking these things, fruit begins to be produced. That those that are opposed to what Titus is doing can't argue with it. 
They don't have a way to stand against it now because it's actually doing what Titus said it would do. These young men and young women and these older men and older women are becoming neighbors that they would be glad to have live near them. They start becoming employees that they wouldn't be sad to have working for them. Something begins to change in their life. Why? Why are they changing? Well, because the doctrine is sound. That word sound there is that word that we get when a doctor x-rays a person that may ha they think has a broken bone. And the doctor looks at the bone through an x-ray and says, it's not broken, it's whole. It is sound. And so, this is what the doctrine starts producing. Healthy Christians. Whole Christians. They're actually men and women that are loving, joyful, peaceable, long-suffering, gentle. They're good. They're faithful. They're meek. And they're temperate. And what's that a sign of? Well, being indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's what happens when a person is indwelt with the Spirit of God. That's the fruit that comes from a believer. Those are the activities that you'll start seeing. Christians should not have the reputation that they are always hard to get along with. But as the Scriptures say, we should be easily entreated. And I love that phrase in the Scripture. It's only found in a couple of places. But all it means is that we're easy to approach about something. You don't come to them and you're worried that the minute you come to them they're just going to blow up and scream in your face. But they're easily, easily entreated. This is the sign of a good father that's easily entreated. <clears throat> I always hated it when I would come in and I would enter into the house and me walking into the house would set the mood in that house and I hated it when I would do it wrong, which was pretty often. And uh, I remember going through the house and hearing behind me one of the kids saying to another kid, I wouldn't talk to him about that now. And what they were saying is, he's coming in in a foul mood. And if you try to talk to him about it now, you're not going to be able to get your way. Maybe we'll talk to him at supper. In other words, see if he gets any better. That's not how we want to be. We want to be easily entreated. We want to be somebody that can have somebody come to us and speak to us in such a way that we're easy to approach over a difference or a problem. That does not mean that you're going to compromise over a problem. You're going to stand on the truth, but people shouldn't be terrified to walk up to you and ask you a question about that truth easily entreated. <clears throat> In fact, Christians ought to be the ones that have the reputation at work that they're not the ones that are always trying to figure out how to get out of work. Instead, they get the reputation of being faithful to their duties and even going beyond it. Young people don't understand many times. I didn't. Now when somebody asks you to do a job, a neighbor asks you to do a job, or maybe you're working one of your first or second jobs in, the, in your life, that you're being watched by the people that 
you're around and laboring with. And then later, there may come that opportunity that you have to put one of those people's names down on a reference list. And believe me, when your name is on a reference and somebody calls you and says, what about old Joe? Your brain goes back to the times that old Joe was lazy. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. It goes back to the time that I asked old Joe to do something and Joe was like, I don't know, I don't want to do that. It's too hot. It's, I'm tired. I don't, you know. Immediately you go back and you start thinking about that. And Christians ought not to have that reputation. It ought to be that if your name showed up as a reference for somebody, immediately they would think, oh man, that guy's a hard worker. Yeah, ask him to do something, he'll do it, but then he'll also clean up after himself. Mike Stewart was telling me today, he said, he said, man, I'll tell you what, he said, one of the things I love is hiring somebody to do something, and then when they're through, they clean up their mess before they leave. He said, that's always amazing when that happens. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, he said, plumbers are the worst. He said, they'll come in and fix the problem and then leave bits of tape and, you know, caulk, old caulk pushed in the corner and everything. And uh, I said, yeah, I, said, I guess you're right. And I was thinking, yeah, I hope he never sees when I do work then. My wife's gotten to the point that if I have to clean something out from under a cabinet and I'm going to be working on the cabinet, she's like, well, let me put things back under the cabinet because there's a way it goes under the cabinet. And I guarantee you didn't take a picture of it, did you? So now I do. I take a picture of it now. And then after she puts everything up, I go look. <laughs> and I'll be like, you didn't put the lotion bag where it was. Uh, but <clears throat> that doesn't usually bring peace in the house. But I, I'm just giving you some advice there of what not to do. But a Christian ought to have the idea that when they labor, it ought to be benefiting the party that they're serving. And when you walk away from that job, you, you can say, I've done all to the glory of God. I cleaned up my mess. I didn't leave things laying around. I made sure that I did what I promised him I would do, and I went the extra mile as well. That is what he's telling Titus here. I want you to speak, and I want you to exhort, and I want you to rebuke with all authority. Don't let anybody despise you in this, because those that are the contrary part, they need to be ashamed that they ever said anything evil about Christianity. Because Christianity produces the cream of the crop in humanity. It produces the best of the people to be around. And if you say, well, I don't see that true being about among Christians. Well, it could be that they're not being spoken to, exhorted, and rebuked over these matters. And therefore, they're not being discipled appropriately. It can't just happen from the pulpit. For parents, it has to happen at home. Parents have to teach that at home. Those of us who aren't don't have parents over us anymore we have to exercise self-government we have to actually govern ourselves now and temper ourselves as grown men and women and say I've got to be obedient to what the scripture says every aspect of the fruit of the spirit sings just beautifully of the faithfulness of a believer that would cause those that are of the contrary part to be ashamed, humbled, that they ever stood against or said anything against a believer. Sorry that they ever gave a believer a hard time for their beliefs. Embarrassed is what the text tells us, that the contrary part may be ashamed. That they would actually be embarrassed because they 
of the things that they said to others about the Christian because now nobody can corroborate what you said about that person because that Christian in no way met the description that the person spoke evil of them. I'll give you an example, an embarrassing example of somebody we knew one time years ago. We had a neighbor. She wasn't the most attractive person you've ever seen in the world. She wasn't somebody we would call a natural beauty. And um, as a result, the neighbors that we knew didn't get along too well with her, and they said ugly things about her behind her back. And I remember, um, in, in, this is when we lived in an apartment, and I was in the military, and we all lived, this four of us all lived on the top floor of this apartment area. And so it was kind of like a, almost a little miniature family up there, but this, this family spoke poorly of that lady who was not the most pleasant thing to look at. And they told another person that she looked like a witch. That was the phrase they used. Oh, she's like a witch. Looks like a witch. Blah, blah, blah. Well, as things happen, we were all at dinner together one night, including that young single guy who had been told about this lady. And I think it's just perfect how it worked out because after that young lady talked for a while, I mean, she was pleasant and funny and just her personality was just amazing, you know, and, and uh, the young guy looks over at the guy that described her as a witch and goes, you know something? She ain't nothing like a witch, like you said, in front of everybody, including her. I, I, if that guy could have crawled under the table and disappeared at that moment, he would have. And his wife was just like, Ah, oh, you know, I cannot believe this. You can, you can imagine the embarrassment for all of us sitting at the table at that moment. But if you don't want something repeated, I would recommend you don't ever say it. And if you want to have the reputation of someone who is godly, you really need to police your tongue. Well, you would hope that if somebody was of the contrary part and they spoke about you as a believer in a negative way to someone else, that when that someone else met you, they would say, none of those things that guy said about you is true. Because you are indeed a loving person, a joyful person, a faithful person, a good person. Whatever fruit of the Spirit might be really evident in your life at the moment of meeting them, you would hope that would be what would be said by them. They were wrong about you because you're not like that. In other words, the entire goal of what Titus was to be teaching the aged men and women, the young men and women, was that they would go out into society with this doctrine and people that were contrary to Christianity wouldn't have anything tangible to accuse Titus of. They couldn't come to Titus and say, whatever's being taught in that church is evil and wicked because the people coming out of that church are evil and wicked. Instead, in this aspect, they would have to say, whatever is being taught in that church needs to be taught to other people. Whatever's being preached from the pulpit needs to be in the hearts and minds of the people that I know, my friends. In fact, I need what they're getting. 
because it makes them decent and productive citizens of the Roman Empire. Now, the sad part is, is that in Christianity, what we find in just a few short years from the writing of this, um, in the 60s, uh, lies were being perpetrated about the Christians that were absolutely untrue. When people met the Christians, they were like, none of this is true. The things, the things we're finding out about you, it, it's not true. But the lies that were being perpetrated were so grotesque and horrible that it caused people to even become fearful of Christians. Christians were accused in the 60s, not 1960s, we're talking about 6-0, um, about 20 years or 30 years after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians were being accused in the Roman Empire of eating their babies because many times babies would be taken and adopted into Christian families and they may have to be hid because of certain Roman rules and edicts and and they would say what happened to the child where did the child go and oh, those Christians you know they're cannibals they eat one another you know this is the kind of thing they do and horrible stories were being circulated about them in fact the Christians were blamed at one point when Rome nearly burned to the ground the Christians were accused of setting fire to Rome under Nero so there are all sorts of things that were being said about them um, if everyone who was sitting under the preaching here became less loving if everyone that I was preaching to became less joyful and less gentle, we would say that what is happening is they're not growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Because if they were, they would be transforming. They would be being purified, as our text said early, earlier in verse 14. They would be coming, if they weren't zealous of good works, we would have to say, maybe they're not even converted. Uh, somebody said, you know, you Christians talk about people being saved and if they don't live right and all that, then you just jump right back on that. Well, maybe they're not saved. Well, there's only two answers. If a person is being taught the doctrine of Christ and they have said that they are saved, they are either in open rebellion to the direct commands of Scripture or they are unconverted. Because what we know of Christianity is that when a person is saved... God said that he will complete the work that he has begun in a believer's life. That's the assurance we have. But there is still the obligation upon the minister of God to speak, to exhort, and to rebuke with all authority. It's still incumbent upon me to make sure you hear those things on a regular basis. So Paul is telling Titus in verse 15, these things, the things that I've just written to you, the things, these are the things that you have to speak. They have to be taught. And the idea here with this word is they have to be spoken again and again. You don't get to just say them one time and then we're done with it. Uh, Paul says that he must also exhort. He told Titus, you've got to exhort. The word exhort and, and the most basic definition just means to call somebody near or to entreat them. Um, to exhort someone then is to, to lay before someone a motive and a goal that will excite that person to perform a particular duty. Now, that differs from persuasion. 
in this principle. Persuasion simply wants to convince you of a mental agreement. If I can just persuade you to make you believe what I'm wanting you to believe, that you will change your mind about it. But exhortation is that which not only convinces you, yes, of a mental agreement, but it works on your affections and passions as a human being. You become so affected that you become emotionally connected to that particular command. It becomes important to you now at the level of your heart and soul. That's the idea behind exhorting as opposed to just persuading somebody. All through scripture, prophets and in the New Testament preachers roused men to duty by proposing suitable motives and the proper reasoning behind those motives. They would be given a virtuous thing and then they would be told why it's critical that this virtuous thing be found in your life. And, and they would exhort you to it. In other words, they would try to stir the soul of the person by, yes, rational explanation. Hey, it's not a good idea to steal from your neighbor. But then, by the emotional application that might involve an illustration. And you could say then that person has been properly motivated. Now this is something that most certainly is a work of the Spirit of God. But that work of the Spirit that a person is exhorted by is applied through the preaching of the Word. We are called to exhort. But the Spirit will have to apply it properly. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 12 and, you, and this explains it much better than I could explain it. Romans chapter number 12, Paul here is speaking about gifts. Gifts from God to Christians. And he says they differ according to the grace that is given to this individual. So they differ in level. Romans 12 verse number 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. So each of us have gifts, but they're all different at different levels. Some of us if I, gifted, uh, if I gifted Debbie with a guitar and I gifted, oh, well, I guess I could gift you a guitar. You'd rather play a piano, though, wouldn't you, Jeremiah? Let's play do a piano. I gifted Debbie a piano and I gifted Jeremiah a piano. I bet we would see different results from them in a few weeks. And it may really be because one has a gift that is just beyond the other one. It also could be that one might apply themselves differently to that. And, it, and I've seen people, somebody just like Jeremiah, pick up an instrument and can start playing it much better than somebody who's not real gifted and they have to labor to get to where Jeremiah starts. That's frustrating when that happens. It, it happens to me all the time when I see people with musical instruments. I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that. But there are differences in gifts, and we know that about people. And then he, he begins to list the gifts. Whether prophecy will let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. So there are some who are going to have a greater proportion of faith, and their prophesying will be different. 
In fact, there's one place in the Bible where he says, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. He's talking about, I believe, but my belief is so weak. My faith is so weak. Strengthen that faith. And we have to have our faith strengthened day by day. Then in the next one, verse number 7, he says there's the gift of ministry. How someone ministers to others. He said, let us wait on our ministering. In other words, let us, let us literally exercise patience toward it based on the faith we've been given so that we can grow in it. Let us wait on it. It's got to grow. It's got to get better. Or he that teacheth. We need to wait on our teaching. We need to have growth in our teaching and our understanding of how to teach. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. There needs to be a proportion of faith, a waiting on exhortation, a growth in that ability to do it. He that giveth. He said, now if you're going to give, just do it with simplicity. Don't make it complicated. Don't make it something that's over the top and ridiculous. He said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, is what we're told in one place in Scripture. He that ruleth with diligence, let him rule with diligence. Let him be diligent about making sure he's just. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. I think that's a very, very good application for mercy. I've seen people be merciful to somebody and act like they just did them a favor. Which that's what mercy is. But he says that's not how you act when you're merciful to somebody. You're cheerful. In other words, you act as though you're thankful that you could exercise mercy towards somebody. Well, there are going to be some preachers, no doubt, with a greater grace given to them to exhort. Some are going to be given a greater gift to minister and to teach. And it's with all these gifts they can be improved upon by attending to the scriptural commands that accompany each of these. A poor teacher can become a greatly improved teacher by waiting on teaching. By saying, okay, I'm not the teacher today that I will be in a year from now if I apply biblical principles and I labor at it and I grow in my faith. So Paul says, exhort the folks with all of these wonderful commands that I have put before you, Titus, that will only benefit them in the church. It will actually change the world around them. And as the world watches, those that are the contrary part are going to become ashamed of themselves for ever saying anything negative about this Jesus Christ and His commands. They ought to be embarrassed. Well, I had no idea that that was the end result of how a Christian was going to act. He's being a very merciful, loving person toward me, and I was thinking the contrary. Then he says to them, Rebuke them. Now you may not remember this text, but it's in James chapter 2 and verse number 9 where James said that if we have respect to persons, if we show favoritism to someone within the church, maybe they're very wealthy in the church and they can do us a favor. Maybe, maybe there's something about them that, that could help us out in a way that if we're just kind to them, they'll do something nice for us. And so we have a tendency to set that person over and above others. Now James uses some real explicit 
examples like if somebody comes wearing costly garments and you say oh you come sit up front you know because that's the seat that's the reserved seat for the special people that's my sister Edith she's the only one allowed to sit on the front and, uh, and and so but you can imagine you bring you bring somebody in like that if the preacher was doting on them oh yeah yeah you sit here y'all would be like oh, look at him patronizing that guy because he looks like he's rich you know pulls up in a limousine maybe and everything and and, and you would be broken hearted if you saw your preacher carrying on like that with somebody that looked like they were wealthy. Well, he says this, but if you have respect to persons, here's what he said, you commit sin, and then he uses this phrase, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So you've actually broken the law of God if you have respect to persons persons. You're convinced of the law of transgressors. Now, that little phrase there, being convinced there, is the same word that Paul uses here for the word rebuke. Hmm. Same word for rebuke. In other words, he tells Titus you need to rebuke. You need to say in a convicting, convincing way to someone you need to test them. You need to lay bare their motives through your teaching. In other words, you need to expose their heart so that they might see their error and recognize themselves as transgressors of the law. Now sometimes somebody will say to me or Pastor Josh after a message, they'll say, you know, um, you're getting kind of personal there in that message. Now, I've never had anybody say that to me angrily. They usually say that to me in kind of a joking way, but they were saying, hey, you stepped on my toes today. You got real close to my heart on that issue because I was convinced today that I was in sin over the very matter you were preaching on. Man, you made me realize that I have a shortcoming in my life because of the preaching of the Word of God. In other words, you rebuked me with all authority. And that word there, rebuke, is the same word that is convinced of the law as transgressors in James chapter 2 and verse number 9. So we have to preach in such a way that oftentimes we may give two or three different illustrations or text verses that the Spirit of God might use to convince you of the fact that you've transgressed the law of God. Because as we come to passages, sometimes the passage, we don't see ourselves as a transgressor in that passage. We kind of look at the passage and we go, yeah, all them other people need to be doing this. In fact, take, the, take this passage. We're going to use this one as an example. Don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. Amen. We don't need to be doing that. What does that mean? Well, in the practical sense, it means when you got your ox out there and he's walking on the corn or the grain and breaking the husk up and things and the ox gets hungry, don't put a muzzle on him. If he wants to eat some of that grain he's working for, let him eat it. That's what he does. He's treading out the corn, let him enjoy it at his leisure. So we hear that text. It comes from Deuteronomy 25 in verse number 4. And we're not the least bit convicted when we hear that because in the first place we don't own an ox. 
We don't have an ox, but you know what? We see the newspaper report, and we see these pictures of horses, and you can see their ribs, and and you, and we, you know what we do? We get man, he muzzling his ox, and we kind of apply that to them, and we don't like it, and we think it was it would be cruel for somebody to treat an animal like that. In fact, the Bible even describes a man that cares for his animals correctly as a righteous man. The Bible says, yeah, a righteous man, he, he takes care of his animals, and a wicked man doesn't. That's, that's, that's in the Proverbs. So, yeah, okay, we can go with that. And then we go on with our day. Yeah, Deuteronomy 25.4, lay it on them. Got it. Then one day, the preacher gets up and preaches from 1 Corinthians, where Paul is instructing the members of the church there to ensure that they're actually willing to take care of the pastor's needs. And he calls up Deuteronomy 25 and he says that this is in relation to caring for pastors. And here's what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You want to turn there, you want to look with me. Because now we're going to move from a disconnected ox that none of us own. Does anyone in here own an actual ox? I didn't think so. Does anybody have oxtail in their freezer? No, you don't even have an oxtail in your freezer. So, so we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, verse number 8. Say I these things as a man, or, so, or saith not the law the same also. He says, you know, am I saying this like a man would just get in here and fuss and say it, or does the law actually explain what I'm saying? For it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the ox, the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Then he asks a question, does, does God take care for the oxen? Or, saith he it altogether for our sakes. So he says, what did God put that in there for? Did he say it for the ox alone? Or did he also say it for our sakes here today? He says, for our sakes, no doubt. This is written. He said, it was written not just for that ox, but for us. It was written for our sakes. And then he says this, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we, Paul and his, his entourage, have sown unto you spiritual things, if we've come and we've laid the scripture in front of you, is it a great thing if we reap your carnal things? He said, is it any big deal if we've given you spiritual things that you reach in your wallet and give us carnal things? He says, is that really an issue? He said, if others be partakers of this power over you, if other people get to reach in your wallet and take things from you for services rendered, are we not rather or all the more? And that's, so, now just in case you think, well, that's just a one-off. Paul was having trouble with the Corinthian church anyway. They were already a trouble-making church. And so he's trying to get them to understand that when they come there... They shouldn't be the least bit reticent in helping Paul and his group of people out. But he writes the same thing to another church. A church where there's not so many problems. He writes to the church at Ephesus. Go to 1 Timothy chapter number 5. So he writes to now Pastor Timothy at the church at Ephesus. And he tells him this in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So he's, he's saying, uh, uh, Timothy, 
you're going to have a lot of elders there at the church. He said, make sure that the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, but especially those are the, the ones who are doing the teaching and preaching. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is worthy of his reward. So none of us would have been convinced, if you will, as James 2.9 puts it, that we were breaking the law when we read Deuteronomy 25. None of us concerning care for an ox. We would have agreed with God. But all of a sudden we realize the practical application for us is not to expect the preacher we have submitted to to be neglected in his salary. We wouldn't have put that together, would we? Because we might not have drawn that inference. In fact, double honor. Not, not only does he get to graze while he works, but when you put him in a stall at the end of the day, he needs something there too. But now our hearts are pricked. Because we've just been rebuked. We've been rebuked. We're now convinced that we're transgressors of the law. James 2.9. Our hearts are pricked because we realize we've transgressed. And we didn't do our due diligence with the resources that God's entrusted us with. So, here's what Paul is telling Titus. Titus, you're, you're, you've got to speak these things to the people. And the speaking there is not speak once, but speak over and over. In fact, verse 1 of, of Titus 2, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, which complement sound doctrine. And then he closes out the chapter, These things speak. You've got to say them to the people. You've got to say to the people, Older guys, you've got to be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. You've got to do it. You don't have a choice. This is what you've got to do. He's speaking it. The aged women, likewise. You've got to do those things too. You've also got to act in a way that becomes holiness, that complements holiness. You can't be false accusers. And ladies, you can't be given to much wine. And you've got to teach good things. You also have a duty upon you, older ladies, that you need to teach the young women. You need to teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands and to love their children. They need to be discreet, discreet, chaste, keepers at home. They need to be good and obedient to their own husbands. And, and, and the reason is so that the Word of God doesn't get blasphemed. Then, young men likewise, all the same for you too. And they've got to be exhorted to be sober. Mind. These are the things you've got to speak, Titus, okay? And he says, and then I want you to exhort those things. Now I want you to put this in such a passionate way that it didn't just go into their minds. They, didn't, they weren't persuaded only. But now these things are stirred within their passions and emotions. It's, yes, I'm going to do this rather than, yeah, that's a really good idea. Maybe I ought to think about that. I, I, I like to take notes and write stuff in my Bible and take notes when I, you know somebody's preaching because it, it helps me if I write it down to kind of solidify it sometimes in my head, help me remember it. And then later I can go back and look at it and, and, and it further aids me. And sometimes it's the later reading of the a note I may have put in my Bible that I'm actually then exhorted full, more, in a more full way in the quietness of my study. But many times I'm exhorted on the spot by the preacher. And then finally he says, now you need to also rebuke them. Why would I have to rebuke them? Because they're not going to always do what you've spoken and exhorted. 
Now they've got to be called to a harsher accounting. They've got to be said, you're in sin. And I'm going to convince you with the scripture. I'm going to go to other scriptures. I'm going to point them out and say, this is why you're in sin. And he says, now you've got to do that with all authority, Titus. And if you can understand, if you as the hearer understand the duty that God has put on the preacher, you're less likely to get offended every time the preacher gets up and skins you. You're less likely to go out of here thinking, oh, he did was fuss at us tonight. No, no, no. He was being obedient to the command that was given in the scriptures of how a preacher is supposed to conduct himself from the pulpit. He's supposed to speak it. Yeah, he's got to tell you. He's also got to exhort you. He's got to figure out a way to say it and put it in such a way that it begins to stir you inside. Now that, like I said, exhortation is a work of the Spirit but so is preaching, but we're commanded to preach. And now sometimes I'm going to have to rebuke. I've got to say, hey, this, you're the man. Like Nathan said to David after he gave him that illustration. Nathan came to David and gave him the illustration. You remember the illustration he gave to David when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed? There's a neighbor, he had this little lamb, and a fellow said, hey, I want the lamb, and he took the lamb, and he killed it, and fed it to his friend. He said, that little lamb was in his, his neighbor's bosom, and he raised him, and he slept with him, and, you know, it was his pet. And he ate him. His neighbor ate him and didn't care. And David's like, that man needs to be put to death. And Nathan said, you're the man. Oh, oh, well, wait a minute now. It was, when it was him, it's one thing, but... That's what happens when you're convinced as a transgressor of the law. When the finger is put on you and you're said, hey, that's you. So when you understand this is a preacher's obligation, it helps you receive the preaching of the word differently. Hey, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's brought it to our attention and we've got to, now we've got to decide how as a believer will I respond to what he's just said. Is there something in my life that I need to be correcting in this area? Do I need to go take the muzzle off my ox? You know, or do I need to, do I need to be more sober? Do I, do I, do I need to, as, as the scriptures teach, stop being a false accuser, a slanderer? Maybe, maybe I need to push the bottle of wine away from me. Maybe I'm, I'm given to too much wine. Maybe I, as a wife, I, I need to love my husband more. I need to love my children more. I heard a preacher the other day, he, he said, you know, isn't it interesting that when Paul's giving the exhortation in the book of Ephesians, he doesn't tell the wife that she's to love her husband. Uh, she's just to obey him. And I thought, but the scriptures teach that you're supposed to love your husband. And more than just, it, just because it doesn't say it the way you were wanting it said in Ephesians, it says here that one of the things pastors are supposed to instruct the age women to do is that they would teach the young women to love their husbands. Love them. And, and you know, and then when the preacher looks across the congregation and says, ladies, do you love your husband? Do you love him? Would you lay down your life for him? You know, oh, now I'm, I'm bothered. 
Well, the Scripture said you should. Now you've been rebuked. Are you convinced that you're a transgressor of the law? There's the duty that's upon the preacher. So I hope that helps you in your understanding as we come to these texts. This is what is expected from a pulpit ministry. When the pastor gets up, he has these duties upon him. He can't give a little sermonette, you know, where he just gets up and makes a soft little speech and says, you know, we just all need to be happy and love Jesus and, you know. Um, no, that's actually not the call from the Word of God for the men of God. And therefore, it's incumbent upon you as believers to receive the Word of God in the way that it is presented to you. You have to take the speaking, you have to take the exhorting, and you do have to take the rebuking with all authority. For God's the one that gave the authority to the ministers of the gospel to present it in such a fashion. But it is always done with an eye to your well-being and for your good and for God's glory. Let's all stand to our feet and we will be dismissed. We'll be back here tomorrow night at 7 o'clock once again for our Bible College lecture. Looking forward to us continuing on in primary theology. Father, I thank you for the passage as before us. I pray that you would help our congregation to very carefully consider their duty as listeners to the Word of God that they would come ready to hear the word spoke to them, ready to be exhorted to the things they need to do, and God, that they would be ready to receive rebuke, that their hearts might be convinced if they have indeed transgressed the law of God, that they would repent and correct it quickly. Lord, for those that are unconverted within this auditorium tonight, it is my earnest prayer that you would grant repentance in faith, that they would see themselves as indeed transgressors of the law, that they have transgressed the very commands that you have given us, and that in their godly sorrow, they might repent and believe the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you all so much, and we will see you.